The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. This is Gordon Runyon. I'm currently serving as pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. Thank you for downloading this edition of Setting the Record Straight. It's my prayer that the following overview of the book of Job will be a blessing to you. I hope you're not currently traveling through a dark valley, but if you are, may you find here a cup of cool water and a little more light for your path until such time as God's providences in your life take a warmer and more joyful turn. I was converted in 1989. Since then, I've read the Bible over and over, as many of you have. By God's grace, I think I've grown in that process. I think I've gained in knowledge and hopefully in understanding. But I confess that one book of the Bible vexed me for decades, and that is the book of Job. You can comprehend the story the first time you read it, in the sense that the plot is not difficult at all. Nobody speaks in riddles or puzzles or anything. But to understand it is a different thing. The book features an extended argument between righteous Job and his three friends, who turn out to be somewhat less righteous than him. In the opening scenes, Satan gets God's permission to destroy Job all the way up to just shy of taking his life. His possessions are all stolen or destroyed. His children die together in a stunning calamity. His many servants, additionally, are all murdered together the same day. Finally, Job is struck in his own flesh with a disgusting disease that causes his skin to break out in agonizing, open, oozing sores all over his body. His three friends come to comfort him, and for the first week they do a really good job. They simply sit there with him in silence and share in his mourning. But then once that week is up, they spend the next 29 chapters taking turns trying to convince Job that he deserves everything he has suffered. A fourth friend shows up in chapter 32 and explains that the reason he will now speak is because the three friends have been unsuccessful. After this last man vents his belly on Job for nearly as long as a modern State of the Union address, God himself shocks everyone by showing up personally and speaking directly to Job. The result of all this is that Job finally repents of some rash words on his own part, and God expresses his displeasure with the three friends, judging that they have not spoken rightly about him. At the warning of his wrath, the friends prepare a large sin offering to God in the presence of Job, who prays for their forgiveness and pardon. God spares them in response to Job's intercession, and then restores Job's fortunes. Now here is what is troubling if you seek to actually understand what has happened here. There are features in the book that may seem at odds with each other. The three friends who earn God's displeasure for not speaking rightly of him say things that can overwhelmingly be supported and corroborated through the rest of Scripture. 
I'm guessing nine-tenths of what they argue is also argued in the Psalms and Proverbs and the Law of God and in the Prophets. The fourth friend's name is Elihu, and he says basically the same things the three have said, but God does not get angry with him. Finally, when God speaks directly, he actually repeats some of Elihu's words, which weren't markedly different than the three. At both ends of the book, on the other hand, we have God declaring that Job spoke rightly. In the first two chapters, Job's response to all his disastrous news was righteous. He did not sin in what he said. And then in the last chapter, God says Job spoke rightly of him. But in the same chapter, Job himself repents for speaking about things he didn't understand. So the $64,000 question is, in what way did the three friends of Job testify falsely about God? And how was Job in the wrong? What specifically did he have to repent of in the face of God's repeated declaration that he spoke rightly? But that's not all. Oh no. In all this, we haven't touched yet on the underlying thematic question that haunts the entire book, which is, why do the righteous sometimes suffer as if they were under God's wrath? That's really what the whole argument is about. And then when God shows up ostensibly to give the definitive, authoritative answer to that question, he doesn't seem to bother. In fact, he goes on for several chapters never addressing the topic, much less answering the question. So much so, that last week I read several summaries or overviews of the book of Job by more experienced teachers than myself, which concluded that maybe the message is that we're not supposed to ask that question in the first place. Or if we ask it, we shouldn't expect an answer. Friends, I believe we can do better than that. I think we're supposed to. In this message, we will seek to find the underlying error of the three friends, the error Job had to repent of, and we'll see that both these errors survive and seem to thrive within modern evangelicalism today. And finally, we'll see how God answers the unspoken question of the book of Job. So first, let's talk specifically about the three friends of Job. They are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. What was their error? As they observe Job's suffering, they start off gently, first kind of asking Job if maybe there's something they don't know about that he needs to repent of. But by the end of their argument, they're not pulling any punches. But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. The logical argument made by the three can be stated like this. Premise 1. God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Premise 2. Job is being punished. Conclusion. Job is wicked. Where is this logic faulty? The tricky part here is that premise 1 is correct as far as it goes. God does punish the wicked and reward the righteous. He promises as much in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 where the curses and blessings are all earthly, having nothing to do with the afterlife but with life here and now. 
In addition, we see it happening all the time throughout the narrative books of the Bible. The bad guys get, get what's coming to them, and those who turn from sin and obey God are routinely exalted. And the prophets speak with a unified voice to the effect that Israel's sins will bring or have brought about their judgment. This concept is also woven throughout Proverbs, where we are shown multiple examples of what happens to the fool or sinner compared to the righteous or wise man. In fact, Proverbs 11.31 takes for granted the concept that earthly blessings and punishments happen in this world, not just in heaven and hell. Quote, Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. So yes, God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. It's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go as far as the Bible does. Solomon observed, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. Ecclesiastes 8.14 Psalm 73 is about this very phenomenon. The psalmist confesses to nearly losing his faith over the observation that wicked men sometimes flourish and spread themselves like native green trees. Their lives are marked by abundance and their deaths by peace. Job also recognizes this to be true, as in Job 21, 7-9, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. The three friends' main error was in not recognizing that although God rewards our actions here and now, we can look around and see that He doesn't necessarily do so immediately, or in the time that we would like to see it. And sometimes, to our eyes, it looks like the opposite is happening. The righteous are rewarded as if they had been wicked, and vice versa. If Job was suffering under what looked like colossal punishments, the only viable conclusion was that Job was a colossal sinner. The only solution, then, to Job's plight was Job's repentance. Start doing right and not wrong, and God will reward you accordingly. But the first two chapters of Job gave us a behind-the-scenes look. We know the friends are wrong. They are not just off by a little, but their estimation of the situation is opposite the truth. Job was suffering precisely because both God and the devil recognized him as a righteous man. And there was a test in progress that nobody else knew about. This was the major error of the three friends. They believe that there must be a one-to-one, straight line, no exceptions, immediate correlation between sin and suffering, between righteousness and reward. Here is how this applies to us. We tend to be suckers for this sort of thinking in our own lives, don't we? We can let the devil use this tactic to condemn us, and maybe we don't put up much of a fight. Bad things happen to us, or we fail at something that was important to us. And we can be surprisingly quick to condemn ourselves for the failure. It must be a byproduct of our sin. If only we had been more righteous, then things would have turned out more positively. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to absolve us from genuine responsibility. We may, in fact, fail because we didn't do enough to succeed, or we did poorly at this or that. But our enemy will try to get us to accept the blame even for things outside our control, as the three friends tried to foist Job's tragedies on him to make them his fault. This is also a major error of the modern Word of Faith movement, which is nicknamed Name It and Claim It, Blab It and Grab It, Confess It and Possess It, etc. I remember a particular commercial that used to play advertising Kenneth Copeland's TV show. There was a very irritating clip of his wife behind a pulpit loudly declaring, If you do good, good is going to happen to you. What's the biblical answer to that assertion? Well, the answer is yes and amen. Generally, and over the course of time, or a lifetime, or generations, that is the truth. But God has perfect freedom to bring that about in His own timing, in the manner of His choosing, and even to do something other than that for the sake of attaining other goals or outcomes. God does punish the wicked with suffering here in this world. But he has other purposes for suffering that are redemptive and transformative and ultimately good. He is sovereign over all of this and gets to do as he pleases. That's kind of the job description of ruling the universe. The other general error of the word of faith theology is that of having faith in faith or having faith in confessing your faith. Biblically, the blessing of God comes to those who are covenantally faithful. They believe the right things and actually go out and keep His commandments. They do not stubbornly or mindlessly repeat inane phrases meant to morph reality into their desired mold. That is witchcraft, actually, and not faith. I have a friend whose godly, devout Christian mother died after a long battle with breast cancer. During her struggle, she had Christian friends, who apparently went to the same counseling seminar as Job's friends, who helpfully informed her that if she would only stop walking in unbelief, God would heal her. This is nothing but wickedness, and fools around us perpetuate it all the time. It's not merely cruel to people who are told such things, but it's a a harsh taskmaster to the rank-and-file word-of-faith believers. Find me an enthusiastic adherent to name-it-and-claim-it theology, And I'll show you a person who only has his own lack of faith to blame for the fact that he's not perfectly healthy or amazingly wealthy. The simple believer is stuck on a cruel treadmill where every instance of bad news, discomfort, loss, or suffering in his life is at bottom his own fault for not being able to confess it away. On my last ship in the Navy, I had a Christian friend who was bound up in the prosperity gospel. We had a six-month cruise scheduled where we would all be taken away from our families. My friend spent the months prior to the cruise date boldly confessing that he wasn't going to go on the deployment. God was going to find a way to let him stay home with his family. He was persistent and consistent in his confession of faith. The day came, we deployed as scheduled, and my friend was right there on board the ship, waving goodbye to his family on the pier, just like the rest of us. He was crushed, humiliated, and utterly defeated. To use the language of pro wrestling, his entire worldview did a heel turn on him and put the devil over. I don't know to this day if he ever kicked out. 
I urged him to repent of his false view of faith and study the word with me to rebuild a more biblical outlook. But he couldn't bear to do it because he was so immersed in that error that even when it threw him under the bus, he couldn't abandon it. He was left with no choice but to believe that he was being punished for his lack of faith and his family was going to suffer for six months for his failure. It's time for a break now and an important message from Reconstructionist Radio. When we return, we'll move on from Job's friends and the Word of Faith movement and start exploring Job's own error. What exactly did Job get wrong that he needed to repent of? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Welcome back to this episode of Setting the Record Straight. We've seen the error of Job's friends. They had a strict, very wooden, unyielding belief that God punishes sin in this life on a one-to-one, immediate basis. So that if Job was suffering like the world's worst criminal, it must be because he really was. They were quite wrong. But let's shift into our second section now and explore why Job thought he needed to repent once God showed up. What had he said wrong? How had he testified falsely about God? The inspired author of the book, who I believe was Job himself, comments on what his error was after Job's speeches in the book are ended. In 32 verses 1 and 2, we find commentary that says Job was righteous in his own eyes, and he justified himself before God. This is more than merely saying that Job had refused to repent of sins of which his friends falsely accused him. It is more than some declaration that he knew what he knew he was right and his friends were wrong. This means he was saying that he was in the right and God was worthy of condemnation. I know this sounds very strong and surprising, but bear with me. You see, throughout the Bible, the normal way of settling public disputes, as in between a man and his neighbor, was to have both parties appear before a judge and then make their respective cases. The judge would render a verdict. The winner of the dispute was justified. The loser was condemned. This is the source of the righteousness slash justification language in the first half of the book of Romans, for instance. To be justified in Christian theology is to receive the declaration of righteous from our heavenly judge on the basis of personal faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Job himself had functioned as a civil judge and believes that he did the job righteously. See chapter 29. But in Job 6 verses 1 and 2, Job claims that his suffering has vastly outweighed his sin. 
God has paid him back with out-of-proportion cruelty, as in 30 verse 21. Job wishes there was some way to take God to court with some neutral party to stand between them, chapter 9 verses 32 and 33. He wishes he could make his case and present his arguments, 23-4. He believes that he would be vindicated, another word for justified, 13-18. Of course, the unspoken corollary of that belief is this. In a dispute against God, if Job is the one declared righteous, then God would be the one declared guilty and condemned. Chapter 40, verse 8. In an ironic way, Job's error is like the other side of the coin in comparison to the error of his three friends. They believe that God always and only ever punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Job, on the flip side, believes that's what God ought to do, but he doesn't, and since he doesn't, this proves that there is fundamental injustice in God. But both sides are in agreement that the only legitimate use for suffering is in the punishment of sinners. That's what God ought to be doing, what a just God must be doing. Thus we find them arguing the unspoken question, why do the righteous suffer? The friend's answer is, the righteous don't suffer. God would never allow that. Job's answer is, they certainly do suffer, because God can sometimes be cruel, mocking, and indifferent toward them. Job summarizes it this way, It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he... Who then is it? Chapter 9, verses 22 and 24. When he says it is all one there, he means that obeying God gets you the same reward as defying him. Now, just as before, where we saw that the modern word of faith theology corresponds to the theology of the, of the three friends, so here, with the mistake Job made, there is a modern corresponding version or versions dispensationalism, New Covenant theology, Radical Two Kingdoms theology, or R2K. All of these teach that God is no longer in the business of punishing sin or blessing righteousness in time and history here on this earth. All punishments and rewards are relegated to the afterlife and judgment day. He used to do it one way, but now he does it another. These theologies have taken an inch of theological rope and run with it the proverbial extra mile. The New Testament does in fact teach that there are redemptive, good, and righteous reasons why the people of God may and do suffer. But this does not mean that in the New Covenant era sin and suffering have been completely disconnected. They are not always connected, as with the blind man in John 9, who did not suffer with blindness because of anyone's sin. But that doesn't mean they are never connected. These bad theologies join Job in asserting that since the wicked sometimes prosper and the righteous do suffer, therefore prospering and suffering must not be thought of as any kind of function of God's justice. In fact, they may represent great injustice. And this injustice is part of God's will here and now until the last day when he will then briefly return to the business of setting the record straight and balancing all the books.
But while we are waiting for that day, according to these views, it is useless, futile, and even harmful to try to interpret what happens here on the earth as any sort of real sanction from God. The fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11, gang violence, the rise of sexual libertinism, the persistence of mass murder through abortion, tyrannical government, None of these may be seen as being the ethical, judicial effect of any previous cause, a cause which may demand our repentance here and now. To claim in public that they are will get you relegated to the same nutjob status as Pat Robertson or Fred Phelps. Modern evangelical amillennialism is the eschatological expression of Job's error as well. The only place you can look and see the present reign of Christ is within his church, and you may well have to do even that with the eyes of faith. But apart from that, there's nothing you can see out in the world that will in any way display the fact of a judge who hates sin currently being in charge of what happens and how. How can there be, since there is no longer any real connection between sin and suffering or righteousness and blessing? In contrast to Job and his friends, in contrast to word of faith and two kingdoms nonsense, we assert that the covenantalism of Scripture, with its promise of ethical judicial sanctions in time and history, and yet the freedom of God to dispense these sanctions as He pleases, is the correct view. This is one of the main reasons we believe in a very optimistic view of the future, even aside from all the many texts which promise it explicitly. If God is generally, over the course of time, rewarding covenant keepers, and generally, over the course of time, destroying covenant breakers, then over time and in history, which side must inevitably win? So the three friends were in error for believing that God always and only ever rewards sin with suffering and righteousness with material blessings. Job's error, though, was believing that although that's how it ought to work, God himself is sometimes unjust in his treatment of the righteous, or can at least be indifferent to their pain. This is what he needed to repent of. Now we turn to the third burning question. What in the world was God trying to say about the topic under consideration once he showed up? The Lord appears and answers Job out of the whirlwind, and his speech is, record is recorded in chapters 38 through 41. In my own experience, this has frankly been the most baffling part of the book. But you can't escape the fact that when God speaks in Job, it's a bit of a jarring, sudden change of topic. He doesn't really seem to continue the discussion that was in progress. He has what he wants to say and he says it, although frankly it feels like what he says has absolutely nothing to do with what has been said. The topic of discussion has been the suffering of the righteous and why it happens, but God shows up and immediately starts asking Job whether or not he, Job, was the creator and sustainer of the universe. You might be tempted to ask, Lord, what in the world are you even talking about? Question. Lord, why do the righteous suffer? Answer. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Um, What? I have heard it proposed that what God is doing here is basically saying, Look, Job, I am God and you are not. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, as the heaven is higher than the earth. So stop prying into things that you can't really understand.
Now, there's maybe some of that going on here, but it's wrong to assert that God is deflecting or otherwise refusing to answer the question. God really is answering the question at hand. God speaks out of the whirlwind and out of the storm and gives a magnificent, sustained list of many things that He has created and that only He understands and controls, from mundane things like weather and wind and cold and ice, to stars and constellations in their courses, to strong horses and stupid ostriches, to animals giving birth to their young unseen by men, and a couple of mysterious beasts that may be rhinos or hippos or crocodiles or dinosaurs or dragons. He sets himself apart from and high over his creation. This is a sustained, awe-inspiring statement of the transcendence of our God. But how does the transcendence of God and his sovereignty over creation answer the question about the righteous suffering? Well, because Job had accused God of failing to be just. It may not be clear to you yet, but hang on. Hopefully you've heard of Cy Tin Bruggenkate's two-move checkmate. It's a quick, smart way of showing the unbeliever that he has no leg to stand on. The two-move checkmate is this. The unbeliever says something unbiblical. You say, that's not what the Bible says. He says, I don't believe the Bible. And then you say, you don't believe the Bible is true? Let me ask you. How do you get truth without God? Here's why this works. For an unbeliever to say that the Bible is not true, he must believe that there is some standard of truth like a ruler or a measuring tape to which the Bible may be compared and found to be less than the standard. You have to have some solid knowledge of what the truth is before you can claim that the Bible isn't true. You can't judge the truth of the Bible without claiming that you know truth. But the consistent atheist can't believe in ultimate truth, so he can't judge the Bible except by his own preferences. To say the Bible isn't true is to claim that you know the actual truth better than the Bible does. On the other hand, we know that God is truth itself. Truth has a name, and it is Jesus. He said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him. John 14.6 It is the truth of God that judges every other truth claim. God's truth is that standard, the yardstick, by which all other supposed truths must be measured and compared. Now, in the same way, we come to Job, and Job's error is that he has concluded that God has not met up to the standard of justice or righteousness. This must necessarily assume a standard of justice that exists outside of God and by which God may be evaluated. I met up with a man who tried to argue that substitutionary atonement can't be right because it isn't just. This man claimed to be a Christian, but he rejected the idea that sin could be forgiven by means of a substitute to whom the guilt of sin is imputed and punished. God, he said, could never institute a plan by which a sinless man could stand in for actual sinners and take their punishment upon himself. Why not? Well, because it would obviously be unjust to punish an innocent one for crimes he didn't commit. That was it. It seemed perfectly self-evident to him. You punish criminals for for their actual crimes. You don't punish non-criminals for crimes committed by criminals. 
that would be unjust, so there's no possible way that the gospel of God could be about a sinless substitute taking your place and mine on the cross. My question was, how do you know what's just and what isn't? What's the only possible answer? The God who created and sustains all things is in himself the ultimate standard of justice. He doesn't merely do good things or act righteously. He is goodness and righteousness. There is no yardstick of justice by which you can compare the actions of God and decide whether they fall short or not. He is the standard. He is truth. Justice can only be what God says that it is. But Job has condemned God for his failure to be just. Excuse me, Job, but by what standard do you judge God's righteousness as unrighteousness? Do you see now how God's answer to Job is the only possible answer? Job says, God, you are not just but unjust. God answers, wait a second, Job. I think you've forgotten who I am. Everything that exists, exists because I made it. This necessarily includes abstract things like laws of logic, morality, truth, and yes, justice. Apart from me, nothing can exist, Job. But you've apparently come up with a standard for justice that exists independently of me, and by which I have fallen short in your oh-so-wise vision. So tell me about this. How did you get so wise? You surely know everything if you know this, right? So tell me. Impress me with your great understanding. Teach me the true standards of justice that I may bow down to them. But if you can't do a small thing like feed all the animals of the forest, or locate the storehouse of hailstones, or keep the stars moving in their courses, how can you do a big thing like subject the one true and living God to your personal standards of righteousness? So what's the answer then? If the question is, why do the righteous suffer, then what shall we say? Well, God has revealed himself to be perfectly holy and just and good and merciful. And we must be willing to believe what he has said of himself, but also what he reveals throughout his word about the multiple varied purposes behind human suffering. If you refuse to believe what God has revealed, or are too lazy to find it out, then you don't deserve any further answer, honestly. Call this a presuppositional argument for human suffering. Suffering happens for all the reasons the Bible says it does. And when it happens, it cannot diminish the fact that the one judge of all the earth must do right. We must think presuppositionally about justice when we long to see justice done in the earth. What would that look like? How would we know? If we are not committed to finding the answers in God's law word, then we are in fact committed to injustice. Are you suffering today? Are you brokenhearted? You surely know someone who is. Let me take this opportunity to gently steer you away from errors that do not help you at all, and will in fact increase your suffering. Don't be like Job's three friends, believing that if you are suffering, the only possible solution must be that God has condemned you. Find the faith to rejoice once again in the perfect freedom from guilt and sin that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. And don't trip up like Job did, becoming angry and bitter even towards God and accusing the Lord of wrongdoing. 
God has a perfect plan that includes what you're going through right now and will result in godly transformation in your life. He cannot and will not be cruel to his people. He cannot and will not and has not been unjust toward you. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. My name is Andrea Schwartz, and I have been active in Christian education for over 35 years, having homeschooled my three children all the way through high school. Now that they are all graduated and grown, I spend my time mentoring women, helping them become the best teachers for their children. I hold online office hour meetings every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom platform. These get-togethers provide homeschooling moms the opportunity to ask questions and get advice in areas they may struggle with as they educate their children. And for those contemplating homeschooling, they can discover how to get started and stay the course. Each week, I will cover a specific area, but the bulk of the time will be spent addressing issues most pressing to you. These meetings are free, but you must register to participate. Search on Facebook for the event entitled Weekly Office Hours with Andrea Schwartz, and then click on Get Tickets.